And we welcome you to The Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I've been searching The Morning Show archives for interesting interviews from the past that might be worth listening to again as we are all collectively experiencing the frightening ramifications of the COVID-19 crisis. I think sometimes it can be oddly encouraging and comforting to remember times in our own history when we as a country or we as a planet have had to confront tumultuous events and great uncertainty. Certainly that was the case in the year 1940, a year that is examined by author Susan Dunn. We spoke in 2013. We are looking back at an incredibly crucial year in American history, and not just American history, but world history as well. In many respects, 1940 was a watershed, and what occurred in 1940 really spelled the difference between what uh, might have occurred and what in fact occurred with the unfolding of the Second World War. In 1940, America was poised between two decisions, to remain isolated from the ominous events of Europe or to extend a hand of friendship and support, uh, knowing full well that the consequences might mean we would be drawn into that escalating conflict. That was, uh, in a sense, uh, a very stark, uh, alarming choice facing the American public as a whole and our leaders. And the story of 1940 is told in an extraordinary new book uh, by Susan Dunn, Preston S. uh, Parish third century professor in the arts and humanities at Williams College. Her book, 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid the Storm, uh, tells the story of this uh, important year. And much of this story uh, we really don't know, or we might think we knew, but in fact uh, much of what she describes uh, are, are events which occurred behind closed doors, and, uh, and, and, and much of what she is sharing uh, is... is, is information which many of us will be learning for the very, very first time. There's nothing more exciting than having a a, a moment in our history brought to life so vividly and having uh, long-held uh, questions uh, answered so thoroughly. The book is published by Yale University Press. And Professor Susan Dunn, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I'm delighted to be with you. And I also think that you captured the essence of my book brilliantly. Uh, well, thank you for the compliment. I note from your uh, uh, resume that you have been interested in the Roosevelts, and particularly Franklin D. Roosevelt. Two of your previous books are The Three Roosevelts and Roosevelt's Purge. Can you say a word about what first fascinated you about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and some of the other Roosevelts? Well, FDR, I think, um, created our whole concept of modern government, uh, an activist government. He, to some extent, follows Theodore Roosevelt, who came after decades of uh, laissez-faire government. Starting with Theodore Theodore Roosevelt, there's a new idea of a more active government, and that is cemented uh, by FDR's New Deal. So it is a whole new philosophy of what government can do for the people. It's interesting to compare our Bill of Rights in the Constitution with what FDR called his Economic Bill of Rights. 
the, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution is freedom from government. The First Amendment reads, "Government, uh, Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of speech, freedom of the press, etc. It's our freedom against government, pushing back against the power of government. FDR saw our rights as coming to us through government, not against government. Right to an education, right to a job, right to decent housing, right to health care. So this is a whole new philosophy of what the obligations of government are to the citizens. And that is what fascinates me about FDR, that this is um, the essence of modern government in the world today. Hmm. You are a historian, of course, and a professor of history. Uh, What about your own sort of personal feelings about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who he was and how he how he governed and, and the principle which you just spelled out. Um, whether you are uh, an admirer or not an admirer of, of FDR, uh, is it a challenge to, in a sense, remove that from the equation, or do you even try to remove that equation uh, from that e- equation as you are studying him and writing about him? That's a very interesting question uh, about a historian's objectivity. And um, I don't believe in, in objectivity. I, I think that, uh, that that's a mistake for people to think that history is objective. If you read a list of dates, a, a chronology in an encyclopedia, that's objective. But as soon as a historian has material to work with, we shape the material, we organize the material, we use adjectives, adverbs that color our take on the material. Uh, so to some extent, reading history books is a kind of spin. Uh, there are some books that are quite negative recently about Thomas Jefferson. That's a historian's opinion. Uh, if there are some that, um, that are critical of FDR. That is a, an ideological position. Uh, it's true, I do have an ideological position. I am uh, a liberal, a progressive, a tremendous admirer of FDR, and yet, I'm also somewhat critical of him. I, I think that in 1940, he waffled uh, quite a bit on entering the war. He, uh, I think he, in a sense, he misjudged public opinion. I think public opinion, to some extent, was ahead of him on being anti-fascist, internationalist, anti-Nazi, uh, and pro-Britain. I think he was, I have one chapter called Walking on Eggs, which FDR was very, very cautious and perhaps overly cautious about helping the Allies. Finally, with Lend-Lease in January 1941, uh, he he starts taking a more active role, and uh, and the isolationist bloc is also becoming weaker. So I'm critical of FDR as well as a great admirer of him. I'm critical of him to some extent also in the 1930s on immigration policy, there was a point at which Nazi Germany didn't want to exterminate Jews. They wanted to expel the Jews, but no countries would take them in. And America was not even fulfilling its um, immigration quotas. We could have taken in more refugees, as could have other countries. On the other hand, I do say that FDR didn't do enough to save people uh, but he did more than any other leader did. Hmm. 
So it's a very difficult, difficult time politically, internationally. Uh, so many other factors play in. In the 1930s, there was still unemployment in the country. People were afraid of taking in more immigrants. There was also a considerable amount of anti-Semitism in the country. And that was another uh, reason not to take in more immigrants. So it's a, it is actually quite a complex picture. Hmm. And I suppose e- even uh, whether we're talking about these kind of grand events or if we're just looking back at our own personal lives, uh, the, the old phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty" uh, has some relevance here, that it's one thing to look back now at all of these events, particularly knowing where all of them were going, and to make certain pronouncements about why why wasn't this seen, why wasn't this done. And one of the things that most impresses me about your book is that you are not in the least bit simplistic when it comes to that kind of analysis. I think you really do, do a marvelous job of helping us understand the complexity of this moment in our nation's history and whether or not we, we might take issue with the perspectives of FDR or Charles Lindbergh or whoever we might be talking about, uh, at least we are thinking about those questions against a backdrop that has been painted in very rich detail. Yes, and you're so right about hindsight. Uh, there were so many people in nine, the late 1930s who remembered World War One, or who lived through World War One, and they were scarred by those memories, and they didn't want the United States to enter into another senseless war, and they couldn't know in 1938 or 1939 that this, in fact, wasn't a senseless war, that uh, it wasn't simply a question of political alliances, um, but it was a question of preserving everything in the world that we value everything that is meaningful to us, starting with the golden rule, starting with Judeo-Christian morality that Hitler didn't believe in, uh, starting with our Enlightenment legacy, with Thomas Jefferson's immortal affirmation of the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Hitler and the other totalitarians wanted to destroy that. But in 1938, 1939, that wasn't entirely clear. Some people did realize it and were internationalists, like Wendell Wilkie, FDR's opponent in 1940, and FDR, and the two Republicans whom FDR chose to be key members of his cabinet, Henry Stimson, a lifelong Republican, he appointed as Secretary of War, and Frank Knox, another Republican, he appointed to be Secretary of the Navy. They fulfilled key roles brilliantly during the war. So there was a reaching out also. Some people had that, um, that insight into what was really at stake, and others were fearful and um, couldn't face the idea of the United States getting involved in another catastrophic war. Hmm. We're speaking with Susan Dunn about her books, 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid the Storm. And before we probe a couple of of more specific matters, I want to ask you a more general question about uh, what you explored here. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, as you analyzed this very critical year of 1940, uh, I said at some point in the introduction that 
much of what this book covers um, are are events and discussions which took place behind closed doors. Uh, it, to what sorts of resources did you turn in telling this story uh, in such telling detail? Uh, oh, that's, mm-hmm, go ahead. That's an interesting question. There, there are a lot of uh, personal papers, correspondence, and archives that I had access to, uh, diaries, um, newspaper accounts were also very helpful because reporters have their own sources, so that was helpful. And uh, people wrote memoirs. Um, everyone who was in, virtually everyone in FDR's cabinet wrote a memoir. Um, FD, uh, Wendell Wilkie's uh, family have their letters and their memoirs. So there was a tremendous amount of new material and personal material that I did have access to that sheds a new light, new perspective. Um, For instance, one funny story, uh, what FDR chose as his uh, vice presidential uh, running mate, Henry Wallace, the Secretary of Agriculture. And shortly after the convention, it came out that uh, Henry Wallace was a mystic and had written letters to his guru. And the Republicans found those letters, and they were going to publish the letters and discredit Henry Wallace. But the Democrats also had something against Wendell Wilkie, which was that he didn't live with his wife and that he had a very intelligent, attractive mistress in New York with whom he lived, who was, in fact, the book editor of the New York Herald Tribune. So it was a standoff that if FDR uh, revealed anything about Wilkie, Wilkie would uh, reveal the Henry Stim- the uh, Henry Wallace guru letters. So there were little details like that that I came across that were quite interesting, and that was definitely behind closed doors. Hmm. So the year 1940 is critical in our own history in a couple of different ways. One of them is uh, at least... I think mentally for many of us, whether or not, in fact, it's, it's a good way to think of it, many of us think of 1940, 1940 as the drawing to a close of the Great Depression. And, of course, 1940 is also the year uh, in which uh, we are poised on the brink of, of World War II. Let's talk first about the Great Depression. By late 1939, early 1940, what was the economic state of the United States, and to what extent uh, had we finally left the Great Depression and its devastation behind us? We hadn't completely left it. Um, FDR, the, the FDR thought things were getting better in 1937, and so he cut back on uh, government spending, and the country fell into recession again in 37-38, and they called it the Roosevelt Recession. Uh, it was, in fact, World War One that pulled World War Two. Sorry, that pulled the country out of the depression. The the huge mobilizations, the factories turning out airplanes, ships, all kinds of munitions, for the United States as well as for Great Britain, because with Lend-Lease we were supplying Great Britain with absolutely everything that they needed to survive and to uh, carry on an offensive attack against um, Germany. Uh, and it, in the meantime, uh, Great Britain is being attacked every night uh, by the Luftwaffe in their Blitzkrieg. Um, 
so it is World War II that pulls the United States out of the Depression and, and uh, creates 100% employment. Uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary, the mobilization that's taking place. Mm. Much of the drama of your book, and, and it's interesting, we, anybody reading this book obviously knows ultimately that Franklin Roosevelt chose to run for a third term and that he won. I mean, uh, I, I can't conceive of an American picking up this book and not knowing where it's all going to head. And yet it's, it's amazing how as you, as you read it, particularly the way you've written it, that we're left with kind of this surprising sense of suspense about how this is going to play out. Will he or won't he run for a third term? No, no one had ever done that before. Do we know of uh, previous presidents who had even seriously considered such a thing, or was this a completely unprecedented move for a sitting U.S. president to seriously contemplate uh, running for a third term? It really was unprecedented, and uh, Wendell Wilkie never referred to Roosevelt by his name, but always called him the third-term candidate. And there was some alarm about FDR running for a third term because this is an age of dictators. Many people in the United States were afraid that FDR wanted to assume dictatorial powers. On the other hand, Alexander Hamilton, one of the authors of our Constitution, was opposed to term limits. And, in fact, there were no term limits in the, in the original Constitution because Hamilton felt that in times of an emergency or war, the country should not deprive itself of the most experienced leader, and that's just what FDR uh, did. It really was the war that um, propelled him, that motivated him to seek a third term. I think to some extent he was a little getting a little tired, and he was making plans to retire to Hyde Park, and he had even accepted a job at a magazine. I think it was Collier's to write a column for them. He wanted to start his presidential library. So I think to some extent he did want to retire. On the other hand, he was an ambitious man. There was a tremendous amount of ego there. And he probably felt that he was the one person uh, most capable of saving the world from fascism. Wendell, when Wendell Wilkie was nominated by the Republican convention, and Wilkie was also an internationalist, uh, many commentators said, well, now FDR doesn't have a reason to run because he's not the only internationalist running. Uh, and some commentators uh, suggested a joint ticket, an FDR-Wilkie ticket, uh, because they were both so similar. Hmm. So there, there was a, a lot of suspense about whether or not FDR would run. And he kept the uh, the door open, wouldn't say yes, wouldn't say no, which was also a way not to be a lame duck during his second term. The people couldn't be sure that he would call it quits at the end of the term. And he also sabotaged all of the other Democratic candidates by doing something very foxy, he encouraged them all to run, whether it was Jim Farley or even Joe Kennedy or Paul McNutt of Indiana, uh, Henry Stimson, others. He encouraged them all to run and uh, let them dangle in the wind and let them uh, just give up hope so that he remained the only viable candidate. Hmm. At one point in the book you write, 
Roosevelt was directing and starring in an intricate Machiavellian political drama in yes, which he was it. shrewdly maneuvering for control and playing for time. And um, it's, I, if I understand correctly, this is kind of your, your, uh, your, your final uh, uh, assessment of this indecision on the part of, of Franklin Roosevelt that on the surface it, it may have appeared, and, and certainly from what he said, uh, he was trying to, to lead people to believe that he was indecisive about exactly. whether or not to run and for, and for a long time made pronouncements that really indicated he probably wouldn't. But in fact, uh, again, is the way you, fr- you frame this in this passage I just read, in fact, it's very likely that, that much more of this was actually carefully calculated than we might uh, otherwise assume. I think so. I, well, my co-author on my first book about Roosevelt, uh, the, our book called The Three Roosevelts, is James McGregor Burns. And Jim's first book on Roosevelt in the late 1950s was called Roosevelt, the Lion and the Fox, which is a quote he takes from Machiavelli, who said that leaders need to be courageous like lions, but also occasionally uh, fox-like in their different maneuvers. And I think uh, that Jim actually captured the essence of Franklin Roosevelt, that he could be a very courageous lion standing up for principles with tremendous conviction and courage, but he could also be a very uh, foxy politician looking for uh, secret uh, ways uh, in and out and using perfect timing, using his wonderful actor's voice, and basically... Figuring out how to control a situation. Hmm. And so, yes, I think he was in control. I think he did want to run for a third term, that the indecision was a show. And um, there was one uh, Washington correspondence dinner at which on the stage they had a sphinx, a paper, a huge paper mache sphinx, and the face looked like FDR. And the, uh, that, and the question was the Sphinx's riddle, would FDR run again or wouldn't he run again? And that kind of became the joke of 1940 before the convention, FDR as the Sphinx. But he was in control of the situation. And as I mentioned, his main tactic was to encourage other Democrats to run and, um, and yet not give them enough support so that there was a front runner. Hmm. Although ultimately Wendell Wilkie... Uh, is the, the the Republican candidate in 1940? Uh, you uh, do a, a wonderful job of sort of sketching a more complicated picture than that, and the fact that Wendell Wilkie had essentially no political experience whatsoever and began this race uh, far behind uh, the the man who was the front runner for a while, uh, namely uh, Thomas Dewey. And, uh, and there were other big names on that Republican side as well. Uh, where did Wendell Wilkie come from? He was uh, the head of a, util- a huge utilities holding company, Commonwealth and Southern. He was a great intellect, a man of great courage, great humanity, tremendous compassion and intelligence. And uh, other people, especially in the publishing world, realized that. Who were in, uh, other people who were internationalists, 
like Henry Luce, the publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune, who became Wilkie's number one supporter. Uh, and they wanted him, they pushed for him, they organized uh, Wilkie clubs around the country. And also what happens that's, very, that's quite phenomenal is that the Republican convention in Philadelphia starts on June 23rd. On June 22nd, France surrendered to Hitler. And so they, that, this crisis is being driven home more and more. And the question for Republicans, who aren't especially internationalists, nevertheless, is that the crisis is coming closer and closer. America is becoming more and more isolated. Can America survive in a fascist world? And so it, it makes sense for them ultimately to choose Wendell Wilkie and not Dewey, who is an isolationist, or Robert Taft of Ohio, who's also an isolationist, or Arthur Vandenberg of your neighboring state of Michigan, who's also an isolationist, or Herbert Hoover, who also thought he could make a comeback. So Wilkie was the only internationalist in the whole Republican stable, and they, they wisely chose him. And both, candidate, both parties chose their candidates wisely, I think. Hmm. This helps explain uh, the, the, the shifting numbers. And this is one of the most intriguing things. Uh, when you, you, you tell us, uh, actually in the uh, sixth chapter called uh, Dark Horse, um, that on May 8th there was a poll in which, uh, for the first time, we see the name Wendell Wilkie, 3% in this <laughs> poll, and then you, you describe how uh, he climbs in, in late May to 10%, in early uh, June to 17%. And uh, so these numbers are dramatically shifting, and I think what you're suggesting is that they are shifting because the situation in the world is shifting, and more and more it seems like Thomas Dewey is not the man of the hour. Exactly. And the uh, world situation is shifting. Wilkie is getting more and more press coverage from his friends in high places, in the advertising world, in the publishing world, uh, local groups, um, as I mentioned, these Wilkie clubs all over the country. Uh, yes, and uh, ultimately the convention shifts. Some, they, uh, some people like uh, Taft and Dewey at some point tried to come together and make a bargain that one would be the president, the other would be the vice president, which probably would have won them the ticket as a joint ticket, but they couldn't come together on that. They couldn't close the deal. And that really left Wilkie to climb and climb and get the nomination. Hmm. Uh, tell our listeners more about Wendell Wilkie. I mean, he is... And such an important figure, and yet I think most of us only know the name and have maybe seen that iconic photograph of him campaigning in his hometown, uh, this upright figure uh, in the midst of an impassioned speech uh, surrounded by admirers. I mean, we've seen that photograph, and yet that does not convey all that much about Wendell Wilkie's gifts. Tell us uh, something about his appearance, about his personality, uh, about the connection which he was able to make with quite a wide swath of the American public. I th think in personal relations, he was able to connect wonderfully. Uh, so smart, 
articulate, very, very witty. In fact, the first time that he ever came to public attention was on a radio show called Information Please, in which uh, two people would debate and talk about the issues. And he was so charming and so intelligent and so witty that he really captured the public imagination. Uh, he had been a Democrat, believe it or not, until 1939, a businessman. And he, as you mentioned, he had never before in his life run for public office. So with, with groups, when he was not scripted, he was wonderful. In a scripted situation, it fell very flat. And to some extent, it was an, a very amateurish campaign that he ran. His advisors were quite amateurish, nothing like the team that FDR had been able to pull together. And this was a, 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 obviously FDR's third run. So Wilkie was, from the beginning, at quite a disadvantage. And he'd read a speech, and um, it would fall flat, and he didn't know how to read the speech. FDR had perfect timing and the actor's voice. Uh, Wilkie didn't even know how to uh, get the, the script for his speech in large type with right underlinings, etc. cetera. Uh, so people were very critical of how he was running the campaign. Against the backdrop of FDR versus Wendell Wilkie, we still have this very powerful component of the uh, American public uh, that are isolationists who want nothing to do with the, uh, uh, with the uh, uh, turmoil in Europe. And uh, <laughs> I had never heard until I read your book uh, the nickname which uh, FDR apparently used in talking about young isolationists. Tell our listeners about that. (laughs) Yes, he called them shrimps. Shrimps are crustaceans with a nerve cord but no brain. And FDR uh, thought that these people were either naive or very stupid or didn't read the newspapers and had no clue about what was going on in the world. Hmm. And they would make the argument that America was safe, that we were protected by two vast oceans, that we were absolutely invulnerable to any attack, and that we could simply carry on our life and our economy with whichever side won the war in Europe. Uh, The Isolationists were a very, very mixed bag. As I mentioned, there were people who were scarred by memories of World War I. There were very well-meaning Christian pacifists. There were some anti-Semites, like Henry Ford. There were others who believed in fascism, who, who downgraded democracy. They felt that democracy was old-fashioned, was slow, Checks and balances, what could be sillier than checking power? They wanted dynamism. They wanted energy. They wanted dictatorship. And what's interesting is that the number one spokesperson for American isolationism was Charles Lindbergh. And we can talk a little bit about the great aviator Charles Lindbergh. But his wife also became a great spokeswoman for isolationism, Anne Morrow Lindbergh. And she wrote a short book that came out in the fall of 1940, at the height of the election season. And believe it or not, it jumped to the bestseller list. And what is the title of her book? The Wave of the Future. And what is the wave of the future? It is fascism. And she describes American fascism 
uh, as white steeples and little boys with their American slang and in their blue jeans. And I comment that it's like a Norman Rockwell painting uh, or cover on the Saturday Evening Post. She's describing how wonderful American fascism will be. And she describes Hitler as a dreamy visionary and romantic who wants what's best for the world. Uh, it's, it's a, and what's amazing about Anne Mara Lindbergh is what an exquisite writer she is. Hmm. It, it's, it's so interesting and, in a sense, pleasurable to read what she writes because she's a magnificent writer. But this book is toxic. Everything hmm. that she writes is so rotten. Hmm. And also interesting, later on in her life, 30 years later, she apologizes for it. Um, but her husband, Charles Lindbergh, not only never apologized, but he continued to believe in his racial purity ideas. Uh, Charles Lindbergh's take, one of his, his principal takes on isolationism is that the war shouldn't really be between uh, democracy and fascism. It's really a war about racial purity, and that racial purity is more important than politics. And we have to preserve the white race. And he brings this bizarre uh, eugenics and uh, racialism into the uh, isolationist camp. Most isolationists, in fact, aren't interested in that part of it. Mm. Um, but Lindbergh also became just a tremendous admirer of Nazi Germany. You... After his um, little child was kidnapped and murdered, he and his wife left the United States for, for Europe, and he visited Germany a lot, uh, many times, and was honored there as this great heroic aviator. And he'd simply bought into German propaganda. Hmm. Yes, you tell us that uh, among the many visits he made to Germany was for the uh, opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games in Berlin, which, of course, were, were, were dazzling. There's a very uh, disconcerting photograph in your book which uh, shows... Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lindbergh in Berlin uh, visiting with Hermann Goering. And you have a quote from Lindbergh that I have never seen before, but I've, which I find very intriguing. Um, one of the things Charles Lindbergh said in looking ahead to where everything was going was that strength, uh, in his words, was the key to the future. Uh, and you say uh, it appeared eminently rational and fair to Charles Lindbergh that Germany should dominate Europe because, as he wrote, no system can succeed in which the voice of weakness is equal to the voice of strength. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's speaking about how in a place like America, at least theoretically, uh, the voice of weakness is equal to the voice of strength. And he came to deeply admire uh, a radically different system in a place like Germany, which was all about, in a sense, strength, survival of the fittest. Exactly, exactly. The, the, the words that Lindbergh uses over and over again are strength, virility, and blood. Hmm. He also has such an interesting take on the contrast between, for instance, Britain and, and Germany. You write that the more Lindbergh had lived among the English people, the less confidence he had in them. Hmm. They struck him, he wrote, as unable to connect to a modern world working on a modern tempo. And sadly, he judged that it was too late for them to catch up to bring back lost opportunity. 
Britain's only hope, as he once mentioned to his wife, was to learn from the Germans and to adopt their methods in order to survive. It's so interesting because not only is it true what you said about Charles Lindbergh buying into all of this Nazi propaganda, but the conclusions which he drew when it came to America and Great Britain and to the rest of the world. He saw the rest of the world and all of these events through a particular prism, and that prism was created by, in the first place, by his acceptance of German propaganda. That's exactly it. And we should add that Lindbergh was a great aviator. He He's not a, a uh, politician or a historian or a philosopher. Uh, he, he, some, he And many people attacked him and said he should have stuck to aviation and not gotten involved in uh, assessing British culture or American culture and making these judgments. They, they were facile. They were superficial. They were ill-informed. But he uh, had charisma and uh, had this incredible reputation still from his 1927 flight across the Atlantic. Somehow people, many people trusted him and listened to him. Uh, but uh, his his opinions are, are odd, to say the least, about the voice of strength, and therefore we should all surrender to Hitler, which is what he wanted. In January 1941, when Lend-Lease was being uh, debated in Congress, and Congress held hearings in the Senate and the House about the Lend-Lease bill to aid Great Britain, Lindbergh testified at the hearing, and he was opposed to Lend-Lease. He was opposed to helping Great Britain. He said, Britain is already lost. We can't save democracy in Britain. Uh, Luckily, that was a minority opinion. Mm. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Susan Dunn. We are talking about her fascinating book, 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid the Storm. Well, as we all know, of course, by now, uh, Franklin Roosevelt did defeat Wendell Wilkie uh, to secure uh, the third of his four terms as president. Uh, And now as we look back, that seems like an all but foregone conclusion. Uh, In fact, how tight a race was this? How much doubt hung in the air about Roosevelt, in fact, being able to win a third term? Looking back on it, 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 it wasn't very close. FDR won 38 states, Wilkie won 10. But uh, before the election, it, no one knew. All, every single one of the country's major newspapers endorsed Wendell Wilkie. The New York Times, Los Angeles Post, you name it, Washington Post, um, or Los Angeles Times. Uh, and, and the polls were also showing Wilkie closing the gap. And one reason why Wilkie was rising in the polls right before the election is because FDR signed a selective service bill and held the lottery for selective service one week, exactly one week before the election. What does that mean? This was the bill for compulsory universal military training, the first peacetime draft ever in United States history. Just think of that, what that means to have a draft, compulsory military service, when the nation is still officially neutral and at peace. So this was a huge risk that FDR took. 
I mentioned the lion and the fox. Here he was a lion. He was standing up, knowing that America had to be prepared, had to have a ready army, even though it could possibly cost him the election to do that a week before people went to vote. Mm. So the, that, that, that bill was, was tightening the race. This brings to mind, I think, what is uh, one of the most extraordinary moments uh, in your book. It comes uh, very early. It is when you describe to us a meeting which took place at the White House uh, between uh, President Roosevelt and uh, General George Marshall, uh, as well as Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau and and, and a few others. Uh, This is of immense importance, and I'm so glad that you described this, this meeting and what General Marshall had to say as in as much detail as you do. Um, tell our listeners the sort of the, the context in which this meeting took place and what General Marshall said that was so crucial. I, I imagine you're speaking about a, a meeting... Uh... May 13th, where he uh, spells out the, the, the extent of our ill-preparedness. Oh, yes. And that's so funny. America's army is um, 18th in the world, the size of our army. I think we, we're after Bulgaria. We um, are, 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 in fact, unprepared for war. The country needs to mobilize and needs to uh, make huge appropriations for munitions, for more airplanes, and to, to get all of American industry mobilized. And, um, and George Marshall is very frank finally with FDR and, and tells him what the, uh, what the situation is really like, that there are hardly 100,000 uh, trained soldiers, uh, and wherever one looks, there, there are problems. Uh, so there's the question of the ill-preparedness of the United States, and there's secondly the problem that Marshall will also bring up about uh, strategy. What, what are America's goals? What will our basic strategy be? Uh, even if we stay out of the war, nevertheless, we have to have priorities, what's most important to us. And little by little, they decide on an Atlantic-first strategy, protecting the Western Hemisphere, saving Great Britain, and keeping the Atlantic safe. And in the Pacific, a purely defensive posture. They do not want any action in the Pacific. They have to focus only on the Atlantic and so it's very interesting that um, some historians, some people who, whom I speak to, still bring up the question of FDR and Pearl Harbor. Might FDR have wanted, secretly wanted Pearl Harbor to be attacked? And that is um, so far out because that's the last thing that anyone wanted. They didn't want action in the Pacific at all. Everything had to be focused on the Atlantic, and that's mm. what Marshall recommended and others whom I, whom I discuss. And what I found so remarkable about this particular meeting in May, uh, in which General Marshall uh, spelled out the situation as frankly as he possibly could, uh, you, you, you sketch for us the image of President Roosevelt sort of not wanting this meeting to even occur, sort of already knowing what General Marshall was likely to say. <laughs> okay. I mean, and, and in a sense... If General Marshall had not said it the way he said it and painted the situation with with full gravity, 
uh, it's plausible at least that Roosevelt might not have uh, might not have moved in the way that he did. I mean, it's these kind of moments uh, that are so easily could be sort of lost to history, but in fact, all of history turns on these kind of conversations and what That's is said and not said. In our closing couple of minutes, we should talk about what uh, we'll have to largely leave to our listeners to explore in reading your fascinating book, and namely, what occurs in the aftermath of this election, uh, the victory of Roosevelt over Wendell Wilkie, and the fact that Wendell Wilkie, uh, in, in really quite a surprising way, uh, still plays a role even though he does not uh, ascend to the presidency as he had hoped. Just uh, summarize what I'm talking about. But I call them almost a team. They work together beautifully. They come to enjoy each other's company and to respect each other tremendously. And right after the election in January 1941, FDR asks Wilkie to be his personal representative and travel to Britain and see firsthand what is actually happening in Great Britain. And Wilkie meets with um, Winston Churchill and all the others. And then Wilkie comes back to the United States, testifies for FDR in favor of Lend-Lease, and takes on many other missions uh, for FDR. In 1943, he makes an international trip, and at the end of that, he writes a book called One World, And in One World, he talks about a new declaration of interdependence, not the declaration of independence, but a declaration of interdependence, that it's one world, and we all countries are dependent on one another. Uh, Wilkie goes on also, he, he dies early, a very young man in 1944, and just the week before he died, he published an article about civil rights. He, in, in the questions of, of uh, racial justice and civil rights, he was a pioneer. He was way ahead of FDR, interestingly, because FDR had to walk on eggs. He, his, FDR's most solid base was in the South, and he couldn't go near questions of race and civil rights, but Wilkie could. So Wilkie was a great man and a uh, heroic uh, leader, and also showed real teamsmanship and bipartisanship. So I, I came out with the greatest respect for Wendell Wilkie. Hmm. As did Franklin D. Roosevelt, actually. Uh, I so appreciated you quoting what uh, President Roosevelt said in the wake of Wilkie's uh, surprising uh, death uh, in October of 1944 at the age of of 52. You write, he died as he lived, an idealist, a humanitarian, and a lone wolf, His tremendous courage, Roosevelt wrote, prompted him more than once to stand alone. In this hour of grave crisis, the country loses a great citizen. Those stories and more told so memorably in this marvelous book, which again is called 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid the Storm. The book is published by Yale University Press. It includes intriguing photographs, a number of political cartoons from the day, which also help bring this moment in our history thrillingly to life. Professor Susan Dunn, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. I really appreciated this opportunity to talk with you about your marvelous book. My pleasure, Greg. You were a wonderful interviewer and so well-informed. Thank you so much.